I was reminded this week once again of the joy and the difficulty of parenting children. Um, as I was <clears throat> studying through this passage, uh, doing that in the midst of obviously bivocational ministry and caring for family, and um, I'm just reminded each week uh, the grace of God that sustains all of us to do what we do, and uh, whatever context that is for you, I know for me I'm thankful for His grace and mercy to be a father and to be a parent. Um, and maybe you can relate <clears throat> with me as you think about trying to teach your little ones how to submit to authority and the difficulty that is. I remember years ago having to struggle with uh, disciplining, disciplining my children as they were young and knowing when to appropriately do that and how to appropriately do those things. And so uh, young parents and future parents uh, begin thinking about those things now, how to biblically discipline and teach your, your children authority. And I remember early on, uh, my daughter's struggling with the idea that God had commanded me to spank them. <laughs> and uh, and um, just kind of having discussions about, you know, God made me the authority in your life to teach you good things, to teach you his word. Um, and the things that I'm, the ways in which I'm correcting you are for your good. Uh, and so as ludicrous as it may sound, sweetheart, I'm about to spank you for your good. And of course that sounds preposterous to a child. Um, but in thinking about those things, um, we know that God has appointed parents, particularly moms and dads, and, and sometimes in the lives of our children, even grandparents, this responsibility to be this authoritarian or authority in their life to point them to the greater authority who is God himself. And oftentimes we as parents uh, fail at that. I remember years ago being broken over disciplining Lily uh, out of anger and just being reminded even this week of uh, how uh, we are imperfect authorities and, and why we lean and cling so tightly to the Lord and his grace and mercy to guide us in those ways of disciplining and teaching uh, in, the, in the authority he's given us because we're imperfect and we fail at it many times. So this sermon today isn't about parenting, but let me encourage you parents and grandparents to, to press on in teaching your children and guiding them and disciplining them according to God's word because uh, even though you may fail, uh, God's grace is sufficient and he is uh, working through your efforts um, for his glory. And, uh, and so... As a kind of a side introduction, let me encourage you because it is for the good of your children. And I can't help but think of those authorities as parents in the lives of children as a parallel to our topic today that we're going to focus on, which is what does the Bible teach us about submission to the government? <laughs> How does that have anything to do with one another? Well, because it's God-appointed because it's has its many flaws 
and yet God uses it for our good, as difficult as it is to see those things. And so much like, <clears throat> much like moms and dads, uh, God has instituted uh, this civil government over us, and Jesus has much to say about it. And he says a lot about it in our passage today in Matthew 22, and how we might as believers uh, respond in a world that God has placed this authority uh, of men among us or over us, and yet how do we respond appropriately to the way that they lead us? Jesus is asked a very uh, <clears throat> similar question about that in our passage in Matthew 22. Um, he is uh, being confronted by the, his enemies, and in doing so, they are trying to entrap him, and they ask him, basically, how should we respond? How should, how should the Jewish people, Jesus, respond to the government and the things that are required of them? And, um, and so we're going to look at that idea today. We're going to look at that truth today. And from Jesus' teaching, see that God's people are called to live under the governing authorities uh, that he has placed over us in a, in a Christ-like manner or in holiness for his glory. Okay, so Matthew chapter 22, uh, we're going to look at a few verses, starting in verse 15. Let me read this for us. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God truthfully, and you, are, you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? <clears throat> but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left and went away. Now, we've just finished Jesus teaching parables in the temple, and we are still there, as I told you a few weeks ago, as Jesus is being now confronted by these religious leaders. And we're going to see for the next a uh, few weeks, I'll be gone next week, but hopefully we'll pick up this uh, when I return. Um, these few confrontations with religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they are now engaging in full, at, full on war with Jesus in the public's eye so that they can demean him and they can conf uh, accuse him in order to find reason publicly before the people to put him on the cross. So this is a public spectacle. This isn't happening in closed doors. This is a, a full onslaught uh, attack from his enemies before the people. And they attack him with, with uh, the deception that we would expect from the enemy of God. These adversaries, we're told, are two groups of people, the Pharisees, particularly the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. 
And so the first thing that we're going to look at this morning uh, in relationship to our study is this confrontation with the enemies of God. First, we have the disciples of the Pharisees. Isn't it interesting that the Pharisees are plotting to the side to confront Jesus um, publicly? They are trying to, as the Bible says, entrap him. They are making their plots against him, and they send the disciples to him to accomplish this task. Now, you, if you remember, there are two schools for the Pharisees, the Shammai and the Hillel, and so there are obviously students underneath the tutelage or the study of these, uh, these religious leaders, this rabbinic school, and so they're the ones sent on this mission, maybe even because of uh, a sense of deception, because maybe Jesus would not have recognized them uh, maybe Jesus would not have, the people might not have recognized them as uh, students under the Pharisees. And so they would have just seemed as other people in the crowd voicing good questions to Jesus um, about uh, the, uh, the responsibility of paying taxes. And so there appears to be this sense of deception. The Pharisees are, are, are deceiving them, uh, being deceptive and plotting against Jesus privately. Uh, in Luke, the, the words that are used are that he sent spies to Jesus. So there's a sense of just this pure deception as they approach Jesus and ask these questions. And as we're thinking about the confrontation of the enemies of God, we as, as Christians need to be aware that, that the enemy of God most particularly Satan himself, does not operate in the public eye a lot of times. He operates deceivingly in our lives. He wants to, to take the small foothold in our lives with, through temptation that leads to sin. And so whether you're a young person this morning or you're an adult, you can probably acknowledge and understand how deceivingly Satan tries to tempt you in small ways to fall into sin. Those little open doors, those little cracks that Satan tries to wedge himself into, whether to lead you to gossip or lead you to cheat on your taxes or or lead you to be uh, untruthful to people in your lives, however that might be, Satan does not necessarily come uh, in a bold and, and brash way to tempt us. A lot of times it comes very smoothly, very deceptively, where we're not necessarily aware. And so the, the, uh, I would say the, the exhortation from Scripture is to be aware, right? To always be on guard, to have your head on a swivel, always being ready for the deception by which Satan is trying to tempt us as the enemy of God. To be aware of his motives. Also, I think it's interesting that we see a sense of, uh, of counsel here. You have a group, the, the Pharisees. We, we know where the Pharisees stand religiously. They're self-righteous. They're very conservative in their religious beliefs and their, in their, uh, their beliefs of the day. But they, all, they had uh, bound themselves to, to traditionalism. And so they began to hold their traditions above the, the actual truth of Scripture. And in doing so, 
in their conservative views, they were very much against the state and the Roman rule that ruled over them. I mean, the very idea that they were slaves meant that they they belonged to Rome and not to God. And so they were very much against the state. Now, they weren't like the zealots who would fight and, and, and be violent against the state, but they very much opposed the things that Rome imposed upon them, most particularly taxes. But what's interesting is the other group mentioned in our study today is somewhat of a, an obscure group, but it's most likely uh, a, the group called the Herodians, which were loyal to the state. These were Jews that were loyal to Herod, which at this time was Herod Antipas, and thus they were loyal to the state, and and they were entrapping Jesus as well. So what you have is two opposing groups collaborating together against the Lord Jesus. Two groups that normally would not have anything to do with one another. Two groups that normally would not befriend one another and partner together with one another. And yet, isn't it interesting that Satan does whatever is necessary to bring the attack upon Jesus, even if enemies come to collaborate against him? And they are taking counsel together, it seems. And they are being deceptive in their attempts to attack the Lord Jesus. And how do they attack him? Well, the words being used are uh, entrapment. They're trying to lay a snare before Jesus. And they're doing it in, in, in one major way, flattery. Look, look at verse uh, 20, uh, 16. Teacher, we know that you are true. And we teach the way of, that you teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Every one of those statements, they don't believe. They don't care what Jesus thinks. They don't believe that he is truthful, that he is a good teacher. They had just rebuked him for being someone unqualified to be a teacher. Who gave you the authority, they asked Jesus. But now they're calling him teacher. As if you are a qualified teacher who speaks the truth in the way of God. Folks, this is downright untruthful flattery. And flattery is a sin. Flattery is different from encouragement. When we are flatterers, we are saying things with our mouths that we don't believe with our hearts. We come to 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 compliment someone that we've just gossiped about behind their back. Flattery is, is a sin of untruthfulness. It doesn't reflect the character of God. It's very much the the statement in Jeremiah chapter 9, their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. See, the lies of Satan lead us to think that we can speak kindness to someone to their face, but only to turn around in the shadows and speak 
unkind words about them. In the church, we're, we're no different than that. We just oftentimes tailor it into the form of a prayer request, right? Well, I need to pray for this brother because they're struggling in this area or that area when truthfully in our heart, we, we're just wanting to speak ill of them. In church, that is the work of the enemy of God. That is, that is not the work of the people of God. The people of God speak well of other people. Not only do we think well of other people and we don't fall into the, 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 the mire of assumption, but we speak good of others. And not only do we speak good of others behind their back, but we speak good of others to their face, building them up and encouraging them. So let's draw a line in the sand this morning that this very deception of the religious leaders to speak these kind things to Jesus, even though they mean none of them, is very much present in the church today. And we should turn from it. J.C. Ryle says, let us beware of the flatterer. Satan is never so dangerous as when he appears as an angel of light. The, the world is never so dangerous to the Christian as when it smiles at them. When Judas betrayed his Lord, it was with a kiss. The believer that is, uh, the believer that is proof against the world's frown does well, but he that is proof against its flattery does better. Thus Jesus calls them out upon their sin. He calls them hypocrites. Hypocrites literally means wearing a mask. He exposes them for what they really are. But yet even in the midst of flattery where they are speaking unkind things about God, or at least at least believing unkind things about him in their hearts while speaking it with their mouth, there is an undeniable truth that they were actually saying correct things. That Jesus was a good teacher. That he did speak and teach the way of God truthfully. And that he himself is truth. Isn't it interesting that in the power and the sovereignty of our God, even his enemies speak truth about him? Even his enemies proclaim his excellent works, even if they don't intend to. And should that not give us hope, as we know that God can accomplish his all, accomplish all his works in this world, even through the most vile of enemies. Which brings us to an important truth today. Obviously, we the main subject matter here that we'll get to in a second is Jesus's the questioning about Jesus, uh, about Christianity in the in the state, or Christianity in the uh, in the the government government above him. But isn't it interesting that in a world where we would consider our government broken, and we would consider the the politics of our of our nation uh, oftentimes off the train the train tracks, we can still find the same truth and the same hope. In the fact that God can accomplish his permanent or his power and his majesty and his sovereignty, he can demonstrate those things and accomplish his purposes through broken things. Right? That we don't have to be afraid that that a, a, a corrupt system can still produce God honoring and God producing fruits. 
God-glorifying works, we can still trust that Christ is on his throne, that God is ruling over all things, and we have no reason to be afraid. Because we don't put our hope in governments, we put our hope in the governor, the administrator, the ruler of all things, who is the Lord Jesus. So God can allow even the rocks to cry out and worship him, let alone his enemies. And so we see Jesus is confronted by these enemies. And wisely, it says in verse 8, he is aware of their malice. He is aware of their deception. You're not going to pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. And as I said, he calls them out. Why do you test me, hypocrites? And he asked them to show them the coin, show him the coin for this tax. And it says, it says they brought him a Daenerys. Now this test was once again Jesus omnisciently understanding what they're trying to lure him into. The tax that they refer to is the poll tax. It was a tax based upon the census in Rome. Now again, the Pharisees in particular did not want to be counted as belonging to Rome. And more importantly, they did not want to be counted as belonging to Rome and then have to pay a tax affixed to that system because it showed in their minds and offended them because they didn't belong to Rome, they belonged to God. And what's worse is that the poll tax required them to pay with a denarius, a Roman coinage. And what was on that coinage? On one side, it was most likely, as historians recount, most likely a, a, an, a, an image of Caesar. And on the other side, most likely, according to historians, it was, it was Caesar on a throne in priestly robes signifying not only his belief that he was divine, which was blasphemy to Jews, but his image alone was idolatry, which was blasphemous to Jews. So you ball all that up into a basket, and what do you have? You have this complete and total offense to the Jewish people that they would be considered belonging to Rome, that they would literally even have to touch a coin that Rome demanded of an idolatrous king on it that they, and then they would have to pay that for the coffers of the Roman government. So their question was, Jesus, please tell us that we Jews don't have to give this kind of money and engage in this kind of blasphemy with the Roman people. But the other side of the test was the Herodians, who were loyal to Rome and the state, who were thankful because Rome had, uh, or the Herod family and the dynasty of, of the Herodians had affixed themselves to Rome. His Herod's very rule and reign was because he had uh, affiliated himself and was loyal to the Roman people and to Roman kings. And, though, and so the Herodians were asking in the same way so that if he sided with the Herodians, the Jews would be unhappy. And if he sides with the Jews, the Herodians would be unhappy. And either way, they would be able to accuse Jesus of being blasphemous 
or being disloyal. And so it was a test. And Jesus' answer, once again, by looking at the coin, by understanding their hearts, he gives us great instruction, not only for them, but for the people there that were following them, including his disciples, who would go into the world as the early church and have to literally live and evangelize and, and spread and multiply through great persecution. His words resound throughout the ages of the church until Jesus returns. The very famous words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God. In other words, whose image is on this coin? Rendering means to give back. It's an acknowledgement of some form of authority over us. And so Jesus stating that we must render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's literally acknowledges that there is a government that has been appointed over us, that we are not free from that in our life. And so we as the church have to stand firm in understanding that God has appointed a civil government to rule and reign over us. And you might say, well, Nathan, no one in here is disagreeing with that. Trust me, people throughout the church's history have disagreed with that. I mean, we could probably all acknowledge and understand that this country was founded on, upon people who disagreed with the governments that were over them, right? That that's how the United States exists. And whether that was right or wrong is another discussion. But today we're talking about what does God, how does he want us to respond? And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Do we have an obligation to the man, as some people like to call the government? What is our obligation? Well, luckily, this is not all that we have here so let me ask you to turn to one of the few passages that expounds upon this idea in Romans chapter 13. Paul is obviously speaking in a very similar time. So the, the context of what Paul says is not very, is, there's not much difference to uh, when Jesus said these things. There's a consistency Paul is talking to Roman Christians under a similar rule and reign, although some, obviously, government had changed. But he says in verse thir chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. We can equate that to the parenting illustration I gave, gave earlier, right? Child, I'm not a terror to your good con conduct. I'm a terror to your bad conduct. But no, bad, he says. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? 
then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Just a couple ideas that that are expounded here that have everything to do with render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Number one, God has instituted government over us and it is for our good. No matter our experience, no matter our opinion, God can work the good that he has planned and ordained through even an evil government. And we must trust him that he has instituted such a good that without the government, we would say the world we would live in would be in chaos. That authorities like civil magistrates and uh, police forces and, and military and things of that nature are all operating under the appointment of a sovereign God for peace, and for his glory, even if they don't understand that. Even if they reject that notion, God is in control. And so we are commanded to submit to the government. We are commanded to obey and to participate in the things that they require of us. Our taxes in particular, we could, we could write lists and lists of ways in which our taxes are not used in appropriate ways. And yet to acknowledge or to deny paying taxes is clearly a denial of what Scripture teaches. And so we as Christians individually engage in the political sphere to try to correct and to change ways in which our tax money is used. Most recently, the great cause against defunding Planned Parenthood, where we as a church and Christians have seen great, um, kind of almost a, a coming around from the Reagan era of, of, of the defunding of Planned Parenthood, most, most recently, the Title X um, funding that was removed by President Trump was a small victory in a, in, a, in a long battle that we will fight in keeping tax money away from abortions that are, that are carried out all across our world by Planned Parenthood. And so the responses are, a lot of times by Christians, were, are, if, if I'm going to pay taxes and they're going to use it to, to kill children in the womb, then I'm not going to pay my taxes. And I don't think that that's the right way to handle it. I don't think that's what scripture teaches. Instead, we fight. We don't allow ourselves to submit uh, to things that go against our conscience, that go against God's word. And it's a difficult, difficult 
process to go through. And so the overlying principles is that cooperation with government, submitting to them and their authority is mandated by God as long as, disclaimer, they do not require us to violate what God has commanded us to do and what God has commanded us to believe. And so in the early church, when Peter and John are told to not preach the gospel anymore, they continue to go out and preach the gospel because they are not going to be legislated to ceasing from evangelizing the lost because the government says so. They're not going to cease from that. And so the day that a, a, a civil authority comes into this building and tells us that we cannot preach against sin, the sin of homosexuality or the sin of, 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 of abortion and, 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 and taking the life of innocent children, then we will continue to do that and we'll face the consequences. We'll do that. And you guys can all visit me in prison and we'll sit around on the outside of the cell and I'll continue to preach the gospel. Because Peter tells us, as he learned in the early church, being imprisoned and then being released from prison in a miraculous way, that nothing is going to stop what God's plan has, the, the God's plan that's been instituted. Nothing's going to stop it. So an earthquake's going to happen and the doors are going to fling open from the cell and Peter's going to share the gospel with the prison authorities and the, the, the soldiers there and they're going to come to Christ and the Gentiles are going to hear the gospel and it's going to be a great celebration in heaven. God's not going to stop or he's not going to be stopped. And we can cooperate and trust him. Because ultimately, as we render Caesar to God, or render the things of Caesar to Caesar, we ultimately render the things of God, the things that belong to him, to him. And I think that's the kind of the underlying idea here, is that that coin had the Caesar, his image stamped on that, which is idolatry. But ultimately, we know that the image of God is stamped upon all human beings, that all things in this world have the stamp of approval and design of God. It's like at work when I unroll a, a, a thing of blueprints, the architect has stamped the right corner so that we know who did, uh, who created uh, this masterpiece, if you would call it that. And God has stamped his name upon all that he has made, including ourselves. We belong to him. We are his. And so he is our supreme object of worship. Not Caesar, not the United States government. He is our supreme object of worship. Why? Because we were created to worship him and enjoy him forever. And Peter tells us, as the lessons through the lessons that he learned in prison, he tells us in 1 Peter that as we live in a world where we are aliens and pilgrims, the way in which we respond to governors and rulers and kings, the way in which we live as citizens of this country is a reflection upon our beliefs of a sovereign God. 
are a reflection upon the beliefs of a loving God, are a reflection of the beliefs of a God of truth. So when you don't pay your taxes, all you're saying is, I don't believe in the God of truth because I'm being dishonest. But instead, we pay what God has commanded us to pay to the civil authorities, trusting him that he could double or triple or quadruple the money that we have in our bank account with just a thought, with some supernatural way, because he works in mysterious ways. And so we obey and we submit to him for his glory. And so while Jesus answers this question in Matthew chapter 22, he gains the victory. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Verse 22, when they heard it, they marveled and they left and went away. That's a victory. That's a spiritual victory. It's one of those descriptive statements in the Bible that were like, all right, I got it. I understand what direction their bodies walked. And we don't look at that and go, that's a spiritual victory. Once again, they tried to entrap Jesus, and through the wisdom of Christ, he gained spiritual victory over his enemies. Why? Because he is all wise, and he's all knowing, and he's all true. And so we would do well as believers in the church to act wisely in this earthly realm and in dealings with earthly institutions, always in the perspective of seeking God's glory and living according to God's word in all ways because it never changes. His glory is never fleeting. His word is never changing. And so we are given this path to follow. And by the way, he gives us the spirit by which we can follow the path that we are able to follow that path. And as we do those things, as we live in those ways, we give glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And so now, in this world, until Jesus returns, we live in a democracy that is, it's, it's, it's got its faults, and it's got its problems, and it's, Broken, if you want to say broken. It's derailed, if you want to say derailed. But God has given us wisdom, a supernatural wisdom through his word to live wisely in the midst of that, underneath that authority. And we can trust that one day we will live eternally in a monarchy that will be full of peace, full of truth, without deception, in a complete and total perfect place where we worship and submit to the king for all eternity. And so that for that, we long for that. We find hope in him. We trust in him. So that we might, as Peter says, we might keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak evil against you, you may, they may see your good deeds and they may glorify God on the day of visitation. So therefore, he says, be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme, 
to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who good who do good for this is the will of God <laughs>